Thank you, Miss Denise. I almost tripped over my own bag coming up. You almost witnessed me taking a tumble across the front row. That would have been a memorable start, wouldn't it? I should have done it, but I didn't. But it's good to be with you all uh, this morning. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for that uh, introduction. That was lovely. Um, I need you to know that uh, Denise Booth runs the most incredible supervision intern program at a local church ever. Actually amazing. And uh, when, we, um, when we're wondering about how to, how to train pastors, how to supervise interns, I say, oh, talk to Denise. So I'm so sorry if people have been doing that. That's my fault. I've been creating work for you. But I um, did just want to particularly honour our wonderful interns who are um, part of this campus, Julie, Matt, uh, Siobhan's not here, I'm thinking Rebecca, they are absolutely incredible. But I particularly really wanted to um, just acknowledge, you have two third-year interns. Can I just say that to do three years of that, this takes a special kind of person. And uh, uh, you guys have two, um, Matt Taylor and Julie Clark. And yeah, well, you can clap for them. And third-year interns are quite phenomenal people. Um, and at the graduation, I don't get to honour them all individually, so I just wanted to take a moment to do so because uh, ELC has done a particular journey with Julie and Matt. And I don't think I've seen two interns with ever as much lean-in, sincerity, authenticity. Also, I just need you to know that their assignments were a pleasure to mark. Thank you. You guys are amazing. But thank you for the journey that you've both done and onwards to the future. You can clap for them one more time. That's so good. Amazing. But it's good to be with you, and we're in the middle of this outpouring series, which I know has been a blessing to our local congregation, and uh, Pastor Darrell was telling me, he said that it's been an incredible blessing to you guys uh, as well. Uh, so I'm going to continue that this morning, uh, and my message is about how Holy Spirit is like fire. But I'm going to warn you beforehand that I'm going to do quite a long introduction. So I am getting to the part about how the Holy Spirit is like fire, but before I do that, I just want to kind of bookend that, congrega- uh, that conversation in a couple of key revelations. And so if we're 15 minutes in and you're like, oh my gosh, she hasn't even talked about fire, will we be here to Monday morning? Don't worry, I've structured the message accordingly. We'll still be out in 25 minutes to the glory of God, so don't freak out too much. Is that all right? I wanted to tell you beforehand, because you'll be like, oh, I don't know this guest. She might talk forever. And in real life, I might, but I promise I won't do that this morning to you, okay? All right, let's just pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. It's living, it's active, it has the power to change us. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the way it bears your image, Lord, of generosity, of hospitality, of warmth and love. I thank you for the way that it welcomes people, Lord. And we just pray that you would make known your presence in the service, that we would hear from you, that we would open ourselves up to you, and more than anything, that we would grow uh, in being more and more like you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. Have you ever noticed that humanity tends to fear what it does not understand? You know, telephones are a really good example of that. Most of us carry cell phones in our pockets. Many of you uh, got them out the moment the message started. But uh, most of us carry around cell phones 24-7. But when the cell phone, the, the telephone first came out in terms of an invention, people feared it. They were scared that somehow this thin line that was carrying your conversation with another would break 
work and that the contents of it would spill out. They thought that telephones would could uh, like electrocute you through the receiver into your ear. Um, they thought that perhaps they attracted thunder and lightning. Some people even thought that telephones were, and I quote, the devil's instrument. There was fear around what a telephone was because they did not understand something that we consider common and everyday and ordinary initially when it came out was met with fear because humanity tends to fear that which it does not understand. Uh, when I was young, we had, um, we still do, my gran has a, a, a batch, a beach house in Pawanui. And uh, we're about 200 meters away from the beach. And I remember that when I had to walk to the beach, I had to go past this particular house. And I don't know what it was about the house. It was the colors or the shape of the house. Possibly it was because I'd watched too many Disney movies. But I was convinced that a witch lived in this particular house. And so I would calmly walk the entire way to the beach. And then for like the 50 meters around this house, I would just break out in a full-on sprint. I had a boogie board, I had a towel, I was wearing flip-flops. There was massive potential for me to trip over. But every single time I sprinted, I remember one day uh, the house came on sale. This is no word of a lie. This gives you an insight into what my mother's like. This house came for sale and mum was like, Hayley, we need to break this fear of this house. You need to stop running past this house. And so my mum takes me to the open home and she meets the real estate agent through the door. My mum doesn't even pretend that we are interested in buying the house. Oh no, she says to the real estate agent, my daughter is afraid of this house and so I have brought her here to show her that a witch doesn't live here. <laughs> that alone was enough to break my fear. I remember I wandered around the house. I was like, yeah, actually, this house is quite nice. Like, I, I want to buy this one instead of the one we're in, you know, because I got a glimpse of understanding. And where there was understanding, it dispelled my fear because so often we tend to fear that which we don't understand. And that principle is so true when we come to talk about the Holy Spirit. You know, so often we see manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We see him move in a way that can only be described as supernatural. We might feel his presence in a way that's hard to encapsulate in words. And because we lack understanding, sometimes we feel a bit fearful. Sometimes we push away. That's why a series like Outpouring is so crucially important, friend, to your discipleship, to your growth and your conf being conformed to the image of Christ. Because I don't want you to push away from the person of the Holy Spirit through a lack of understanding. See, it's my prayer that as we discuss the person of the Holy Spirit more and more, that you will grow more and more open to experiencing Him in your your life, and as you do, you will grow more and more to look like Jesus, because that's why we're all here. That's why a series like this is so important. But I wanted to bookend this with a couple of revelations, because one of my observations in our conversation about the Holy Spirit is because is that because we don't see Holy Spirit, instead we see what He does, we have a tendency to define Him by what He does, rather than who he is. We define him as a power or an encounter or an energy or a force. You need to understand today that you might be empowered by the Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that he is just a power. 
You might be re-energized by Holy Spirit, but you better believe that that doesn't mean He's just an energy. You might be moved by Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that He is just a force. You might encounter Holy Spirit, but that doesn't mean that He's just an encounter or an experience. No, no, no. He is far more than that. In fact, any time you begin to talk about the Holy Spirit, you need to start with two key revelations, that Holy Spirit is God and Holy Spirit is a person. I want to break that down for you. Let's go to Bible college for just 10 minutes, all right? It's going to be a a quick little visit into Bible college. I'm going to go through some scriptures. The first thing that you need to know about Holy Spirit is that He is God. He is the third member of the Trinity. He is part of the eternal, self-existent Godhead. He carries all the attributes, the essential attributes of God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. He is eternal, unchanging. He is the self-existent one. The Holy Spirit is God. And the Bible says this many times explicitly, and other times it just assumes this reality. But if someone asks you, how do you know? I'll give you a scripture example. There's a great story in the book of Acts where a couple come to the early church and they give a gift of money. They say it's all the money, but really it's only part of the money. The problem isn't how much money they're bringing. The problem is they're lying about the amount of money. And this is what it says in Acts 5, verse 3 to 4 on the screens. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some money for yourself. Flash down a couple of verses. He says, how could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is directly equated to lying with God and lying to God. And if you go through uh, the epistles, the letters of the early church, you will find the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all joined together in what we call a benediction and then sometimes in greetings, which is an affirmation of the divinity of all three of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You see the same thing in the baptismal, uh, excuse me, the Great Commission in Matthew 28 verse 19 where Jesus says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The revelation of Scripture forces us to conclude that the Holy Spirit is divine. He is God. But He is not only God, He is also a person. The Holy Spirit has all aspects of personhood. He has a mind, he has a will, and he has emotions. The Holy Spirit has a voice and he speaks. Hebrews 3, 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He has emotions. Ephesians 4.30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit has a will, and he will make his will clear to us. Acts 16.6, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. The Holy Spirit is the personal presence of God. The overwhelming consensus of Scripture is that He is the third person of the Godhead. He is a person and He is God. 
And you might be asking, well, Hayley, why did you run through all those scriptures this morning? And why on earth did you do it so quickly? And I can't explain the second part. This is my personality. But the reason that I ran uh, through all of those scriptures this morning is because it is crucially important for us to understand that when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, we are not talking about a power. We are talking about a person. If we think that we are dealing with a power, we will try to get hold of it. When we start talking about a person, we will let him get hold of us. See, if you think that he's a power, you will try to command it. But if we realize that he is a person, our posture becomes, how can I submit to you? He is not a power that we bend to our will. He is a person whose will you and I submit to. When you talk about the Holy Spirit, you must know that we are not talking about an ethereal force or presence. We are not talking about something that is impersonal or dynamic. We are not talking about something that is spooky or Star Wars related. Come on, somebody. He is not the force. He is the third person of the Godhead. And it is our role in this relationship not to command Him but be commanded by him. He is a person. See, when I talk about this in our theology class, one of the things that students often say is the reason that sometimes we can confuse whether or not he is a power or a person is because of the way that the Bible relates him. See, if you look at the biblical record, most often the revelation of the Holy Spirit is done through pictures. Have you noticed this? Metaphors, oil, fire, wind, water. So often the biblical record communicates him through a picture. I don't want you to get confused about why the Bible does this. It doesn't do it because he's a power. He does it because sometimes when you are trying to communicate that which is incommunicatable, words don't do justice, so you've got to use a picture. Like, have you ever noticed in life when you're struggling to communicate something, you say, oh, I don't really have the words to explain, so it's kind of like this. See, in life, when we run out of words to describe or explain things, we stop using words and instead we start painting pictures. We call these metaphors or similes. The Bible does the same thing. And if you want an example of what a bad metaphor is like, I'm going to read you some out. And I don't know if they're funny. I'm warning you now. This could be one of those awkward moments in church where the preacher cracks a joke and it's not actually funny. So I'm asking you right now, if it isn't, could you just fake laugh for me? Is that all right? (laughs) Here's some examples of bad metaphors. She had a deep, throaty, genuine laugh like the sound a dog makes just before it throws up. Someone went hundies with a fake laugh and I love that person. Get them a crunchy right now. I'm going to do one more, and then we can pass on from this painful moment, okay? He was as tall as a six-foot, three-inch tree. <laughs> Luckily, the Bible writing is slightly better than that, eh? 
It's not very good. Metaphors are important because they help describe the indescribable, and that's why pictures are so important when it comes to God, because he is beautiful beyond description. He is too wonderful for words. And so where words fail, we lean on a picture. And with that 15-minute introduction done, let's now turn to the Holy Spirit as the metaphor of fire. (laughs) Oh, thanks, guys. That's so nice. Oh, man, I'll come here again for sure. (laughs) Okay. Um, Fire is actually the most common symbol of the Holy Spirit found in Scripture. Did you know that? It's often seen as a sign of God's presence. Uh, Examples are all through the Old Testament. uh, When God makes covenant with Abraham, uh, the presence of God appears to Abraham as a smoking pot and then a fiery torch. Uh, In Exodus 3, a famous occurrence of, of fire as a revelation of God's presence, Moses in the burning bush. We see fire as with the Israelites in the wilderness, a pillar of fire. Uh, We also see that at the dedication of Solomon's temple, it says that fire came down from heaven. The presence of God manifested as fire. But the the usages that are of uh, particular interest to us are the ones which explicitly link the Holy Spirit and fire. And we see those particularly in the New Testament, Matthew 3.11 on the screens. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Come on, somebody. Uh, And then in Acts 2, which is the day of Pentecost, which represents the birth of the church, it says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So we see an explicit marrying up of the Holy Spirit with this metaphor of fire. And so the question that we need to ask ourselves is, what can we learn about the nature of the Holy Spirit through this picture of fire? I've got two points for you today. Firstly, the thing you need to know about fire is that fire consumes. Fire consumes. Fire burns up everything in its path. It consumes any fuel that you put in its direction. And you need to understand that fire in the ancient world was an incredibly scary proposition. Like fire, when a city caught fire, could destroy houses, neighboring houses, even suburbs in a matter of minutes. There was a great fire in Rome in AD 64. It burnt for six days. Multiple districts of Rome were burnt up because houses were made of combustible materials, and there wasn't easy sort of firefighting resources available. And so when you begin to talk about fire in the ancient world, people immediately think of its devastating force, of its ability to consume, which is interesting because it seems like a negative picture for God to be associated with. But I wonder if there's something in this for us today, because fire consumes. When tongues of fire fell on the disciples in the book of Acts, the biblical record in English says that it came to rest on each of them. And in our minds, we all paint that nice children's church portrait of a little tongue of fire resting on the left or the right-hand shoulder of the disciples. That word rest actually is misleading. It's very misleading. What rest really should be translated as is immerse. But I'm fascinated 
decided that we chose rest. Why would we choose rest? Why would we think about the Holy Spirit resting and touching instead of immersing and baptizing? See, so often in church, and I don't know if you've ever heard it prayed, I've definitely prayed it before, we say, Holy Spirit, would you come and touch? Would you come and touch? I think this is fascinating when you begin to think of the nature of the Holy Spirit that he doesn't just touch, he immerses. He doesn't just rest upon, he consumes because he is like fire. But this is where it gets challenging to us because we're like, Holy Spirit, come touch this area, but why don't you just leave this area alone? Why don't you rest on this shoulder, but don't you dare come near this shoulder? You can come and deal with this aspect of my heart, but I don't want you anywhere near this aspect of my life. I don't want you to immerse me. I just want you to touch me. Friends, it's a misunderstanding of the nature of the Holy Spirit because the Lord your God, you better believe, is an all-consuming fire. He doesn't just come to touch. He comes to immerse. He doesn't just come to rest upon. He comes to engulf. He doesn't want just part of you. He wants all of you. So often in church services, we pray, Holy Spirit, give us more of you. We don't need more of Him. He needs more of us. Perhaps our prayer should actually be, Holy Spirit, here is more of me for you to consume. More of me for you to engulf. More of me for you to immerse because I'm not just after a touch, I'm after a baptism. Come on, somebody. The nature of the Holy Spirit is that he doesn't just touch, he consumes. Because Holy Spirit is like fire and fire consumes. Firstly, fire consumes. Secondly, fire transforms. See, this is the exciting thing about fire. Fire doesn't just consume what it touches, it then transforms what it touches. And in fact, uh, forest ecologists are starting to believe that forest fires are a necessary part of the development of a, of a forest. Because sometimes in order to bud the new, you've got to burn down the old. I'm going to say that again because I thought that was really good when it came into my head. Sometimes in order to bud the new, you've got to burn down the old. And there are people in this room who have been in a season where things have been burning down. And you have felt discouraged and hopeless. And I'm speaking the word of the Lord over your life today. Sometimes in order to bud the new, come on, you've got to burn down the old. You're not in a season of burning. You're in a season of budding because God is budding the new thing in your life. Even in New Zealand, you'll find that the places with the richest soil are often the places where there was ancient lava flows. Why? Because the land was immersed in fire and transformed by it. See, fire in the Bible is transformative in nature. Old Testament sacrifices were burnt on the altar. Fire is the thing that takes a life and makes it worship. Fire is the thing that takes a sinner and makes them pure. 
When Isaiah saw the Lord in glory and realized what a sinner he was, what does the seraph and the angel do? It takes a coal, presses it to its lips. That is what purifies him. It's fire. You see, fire doesn't just consume. Fire transforms. I was talking to an intern one time and she shared with me, she came to Christ with a bunch of things that she was struggling with and she kept struggling with them until she was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The moment she was baptized, the moment she was consumed, the moment she was engulfed and immersed, she was transformed. The power of addiction was broken over her life. Why? Because what he consumes, he also transforms. And so what is the application point for us? If fire consumes and transforms, what's our response? Well, our response actually is quite simple. Our response must be full and total surrender of all of our lives to him. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. See, the Holy Spirit comes like fire and we are consumed and transformed. And our response is that we must lay ourselves down on the altar. See, the thing that I haven't really mentioned yet in this message is fire has a long and rich association in the Bible uh, with worship. I said just earlier that sacrifices that were laid on the altar were often burnt and the smoke would rise before God as a worshipful aroma. In Revelation 4 and in Isaiah 6, uh, the angels that are worshipping around God's throne, get this, they're called seraphim, which means burning ones. But let me push you one step further. While fire in the natural might consume everything in its path, holy fire only consumes and burns up that which is unholy, that which is impure, that which is unrighteous. The attitudes and thoughts of the heart, the motives of the heart which aren't in line with God's will, That's what holy fire comes to burn up. Holy things aren't burnt up by holy fire. They are simply set alight by them. They are like the burning bush, burning, but not burning up. The aroma of our lives rising before God as worship. Friends, when you lay your life on the altar, when you let the impure, unrighteous, those things in your heart, when you allow them to be consumed and transformed, when you become like a living sacrifice, being conformed to the holy nature of a holy God, God receives that offering as worship. The aroma of your life becomes like worship. What does that mean? It means that our truest expression of worship is not a Sunday morning song. It's the process of us becoming more and more like Christ. See, some of you have been working on yourself, working to become more holy, working to become more Christ-like, working on the character and content of your heart. You have been struggling and striving, and I'm here to tell you that that is your truest form of worship. 
that God receives that as worship more than the strength of any song, more than the volume of any offering of worship. True worship is your life laid down. You better believe that I like to worship. Sunday morning in the house of God is my favorite time of the week. I shout, I clap, I stomp my feet, I attempt to dance, but do so poorly. It's my favorite time of the week. But I also understand that a song that is sung with an unsurrendered heart ultimately is a hollow song. And friend, more than your best melody, more than your loudest shout, more than your best musical offering, God wants your life laid down. That is your truest form of worship for Him to consume with holy fire and then transform to the image of His Son. Transformation starts with a life laid down. And so with every eye closed and every head bowed, perhaps you've never started that journey, or perhaps you're here in this place and you're starting to realize that whilst you have let God into aspects of your life, you have not let Him into all. Today, I'm gonna give you a moment to lay the entirety of your life on the altar to God. This is you saying, not just part God, I'm giving you all, not just an aspect. I wanna give you everything for you to consume and transform to the image of your son because friend, that is what you were created for. And so today, if you need to make that decision to give your life in its entirety to Jesus, I'm gonna count to three. And if that's you, raise your hand. One, two, three. If that's you, raise your hand. Thank you, God bless you. Thank you, God bless you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Is there anyone else today? Thank you, God bless you. Thank you. Is there anyone else today you wanna make that decision? Thank you at the back. I see you, God bless you. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much, those people who raised their hand. Church, can we repeat this prayer out loud together? Can you say, dear Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Today, I give my life to Jesus, holding nothing back. I turn from sin. I follow you. Thanks to you, I'm free. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Amen. Can we just give a round of applause? Isn't that so awesome?